If you have a hard time taking things seriously in life, if you're constantly turning everything into a joke, if you can't be challenged, if you find yourself impulsive and reactive whenever you feel wronged, then perhaps what you imagine is cleverness or your sarcasm might actually be a kind of contempt that's holding you back from the things God is trying to do in your life and teach you and grow you to become as a man. Welcome to the Influencers Podcast. We are here to see you increase in the influence of your life, to make your world a better world and to make the world you live in a better world. Some would say that manhood is under attack. It used to be commonly accepted that there were two genders, and now some people claim somewhere up to 50 genders. If you're a man, this podcast is for you. If you know a man, this podcast is for you. Our guest today, Chase Rupp Low Jell Kel. I thought you'd help me out, but that's you okay. got the R part right, so that counts for me. <laughs> Rep Logal. <so. laughs> Thank you very much, Chase. Has written a fascinating book on the five masculine instincts. We're going to be talking about manhood today. Chase is a wonderful pastor of a church in Springfield, Missouri called the Bent Oak Church. He is a graduate. Uh, New Testament studies, and he's currently in doctoral studies on the sacred art of writing, which was very interesting to me. He is a outdoorsman. He is a dad. He's got a couple of kids. And Chase, we are so glad that you're with us today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's an honor. I, the privilege is mine, and uh, just grateful for the opportunity to talk about, as you've already stated well, what is an important subject for everyone, whether you're a man or, as you said, just know a man, love a man. Well, you are a man. What do you like or love about being a man? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you mentioned I have two kids, so fatherhood is really central to that for me. So I love being a dad. It's hard to imagine these days uh, my life without those responsibilities, and so I'm really grateful for them. And I love the responsibilities of being a husband, uh, both of those. As is often the case, sometimes the most challenging things in life, the hardest things in life, being a father, uh, are also the most rewarding. And uh, I think that's absolutely true of many of the responsibilities that go along with manhood. A fascinating thing I learned from you, Chase, is that men eat more red meat. That was interesting. Just unpack that for a minute, because somebody wants to hear about that. Yeah, I actually opened the book with this. Uh, most studies find that men eat somewhere around 57% more meat than women. I don't think that is a shock to most people, if you probably think of yourself or some of the men you know. Uh, they eat far more than the U.S. dietary guidelines recommend. But the question that has always interested me is why. Uh, there was this really interesting study out of the University of Hawaii where they, uh, they, they took a group of men and they did what they called a masculine threat condition. They had them take these personality assessments and they the results didn't matter. They told half of them they had scored more in line with female participants. They questioned their manhood, made it up. And then the other half said, hey, you scored like men. And then they had them go into a pizza ordering app that they thought they were testing out and had them or pick ingredients. And they found that the men who had their masculinity questioned ordered statistically more meat on their pizza than the other men. And so their study was asking, what is this association between men and meat? And of course, uh, there's actually a lot of debate around that, whether uh -huh. it's uh, evolutionary or culturally created through marketing schemes, if it's uh, a sort of dietary cure, maybe you've heard of the carnivore meat only diet, uh -huh. or on the other side, uh, is meat consumption 
causing global warming and risking human extinction and we should all be adopting a vegan diet. So I, I write in the book, there's this huge controversy around men eating meat. And if we can't agree on what men should eat, well, what else is confusing and controversial about being a man today? I, I think most people know a, a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of those conversations far beyond just meat. There's a lot going on. And it, tell me about the the men that were around you as you grew up, as you developed, that were influential in your journey of life. Yeah, I had lots of strong men around me. Um, uh, one grandfather, another that passed before me, but who's uh, sort of uh, his character, his personality sort of was still an influence. And then uh, my dad, I grew up uh, with uh, a father in the home. I'm grateful for that. A, a Christian father who was a state trooper, a highway patrolman for 35 mm -hmm. years. And then a younger brother who went on to uh, serve as a captain in the Marine Corps. And so uh, I had the opportunity to Grew up in a house full of men, and uh, and my both who I am today, but also my faith and how I'm a man, a father myself, a husband myself, shaped in many ways by those relationships, which I'm keenly aware in culture today is a rarity. I mean, increasingly mm -hmm. we see the disengagement of men from the home, as uh, most people will say, uh, one of the causes of many, many, many problems within society that we're facing. So tell us a little bit about what you feel your calling is, your mission, what you feel the influence of your life uh, should be. Yeah, well, uh, I'm first and foremost a pastor. That's uh, mm -hmm. by, by calling, by my passion. Uh, I love the church that I pastor. I've been there close to a decade. It's very relational. I, I love pastoring people and, and walking with people. And so uh, even as a writer, uh, that has become increasingly a part of my, my passion, my identity. But even as a writer, I, I write so often as a pastor. I'm thinking about these things as a pastor. They're not just they're not just online debates for me. They're not just mm -hmm. controversies or cultural conversations. Uh, even this conversation of manhood for me works itself out in the context of real men, real families, real homes, real lives. And as a pastor, I have sort of a front row seat to that uh, day in and day out. How do you strategically attract men to be part of your community of faith in your church? Yeah, most pastors will know this is a challenge. Uh, the mm -hmm. stats tell us that men are attending church less often than women. They're practicing personally faith less than women, praying less, reading the Bible less. Uh, there really is sort of a male-female divide within the church that's been true now for quite a number of years. And and we've all seen and experienced the sort of, some of them awkward attempts to attract men or draw men's attention back into the church. And and I myself, you know, when we planted the church about 10 years ago, I remember there was a season early on where I sort of joked with my wife that I felt like I was leading a women's Bible study versus planting a church because it was so, it was so much easier to get women to come pray or join a small group or show up on Sunday mornings. And uh, I wish I had sort of a strategy or I could say, hold this kind of event or do that. That wasn't what it was for me. It was oftentimes spending time with men, sitting down, uh, listening and, and thinking about the things men are thinking about, the challenges they're having, not making assumptions about those. In many ways, this book flows out of me trying to understand what are the questions and the challenges that the men who may or may not have been coming to the church, husbands, mm -hmm. sons, what are the things they're wrestling with and thinking about and wondering about? And how as a pastor can I, I bring the resources of faith into those conversations in a way that maybe, uh, maybe we haven't done in other times, other places? And do you think it's harder to, to be a man, to even define manhood in a culture that has has now so many definitions or pushing towards so many definitions of gender it used to be pretty plain you were one or the other but now it's up to 50 some people have yeah the way that i 
sort of think about the moment we're in right now is um, we have from the culture been hearing two primary conversations. One is that masculinity, traditional forms of masculinity are toxic, that aggression and competition, stoicism need to be replaced, rebuilt for this era. And then there's been a kind of opposite reaction to that that said, no, those masculine traits and instincts are, I use the word salvific, they're your hope and your identity and you need to indulge them and you shouldn't be questioning them. And it feels like every time we take up this conversation, I'm keenly aware, even putting the word masculinity in the title of the book, mm. everybody's wondering which of those camps you sort of fall into. And so often when we have this conversation about manhood, uh, we end up just sort of digging those existing trenches deeper. And the thing that I think a lot of men are experiencing right now is I use the word malaise in the book, a kind of just weariness and uneasiness and a sense that so much is wrong, but I'm not quite sure how to go about putting it right or if that's even possible. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think there was a day where it was more controversial. I think now a lot of the actual lived experience for men is that kind of disengagement and malaise and a kind of acceptance that, you know what, if culture doesn't want my participation, uh, if they tell me something about me is toxic, then let them have it. I'll do my own thing. And you see, for me, what is really the challenge of a lot of men and what we've been describing within the church is a kind of disengagement, a detaching from responsibility and expectations, a dropping out. We see that men are dropping out of education and workplaces and marriage and relationships in increasing numbers. And to me, that's really the challenge is how do we, how do we describe a path forward for men that allows men to bear greater responsibility, to grow in character, that doesn't just immediately slip back into the same debates that really don't help men move forward as a Christian towards Christ's likeness. Uh, how do we get out of that malaise, that uneasiness I think a lot of men are feeling right now? Do, do you have any tools, ideas, like would answer those questions? You raised really important questions. Do you have any strategies that, that we could think about? Yeah, so number one, I think you... Um, if you are leading men, if you're a pastor, I think you should really take some time to talk to them, especially some of the, the younger disengaged men, and ask questions about the kinds of things they're reading, listening to, thinking about. I think what you'll find is there's a lot of conversations men are having online, whether through podcasts or books, hmm. that in my experience, the church hasn't been paying a lot of attention to. Some of those are conversations you may not even think are that interesting, or you may think sound, uh, sound strange. But for a lot of men, those are the things they're they're thinking about, and how mm -hmm. do we sort of interact in those conversations from our perspective of faith? Uh, so being able to listen to where men are, I think, is really important right now. And I think we've got to push the conversation for a long time the way that we as Christians have been talking to men, and rightfully so, have been warnings about sin. I always think of the money, sex, and power conversation. That's sort of, as men, you know, we think, here are the landmines you need to watch out mm -hmm. for. And there, that, that should be done. Um, we should continue talking about those things. But it's not enough to warn a man about where those potential sins are. At some point, we have got to be able to help men grow beyond those things and start asking deeper questions about why do those particular sins cause me to stumble? Uh, what is going on in my individual life? And how do, I, how do I put in place practices that help me grow in character and become a better man and capable of bearing greater responsibilities? So I would say try to talk to men and listen. Uh, enter into the conversations they're having as an entry point. And then two, uh, try to try to have a conversation about how do we describe a path forward to better character towards men becoming uh, more principled, full of integrity, character. That's something I think men can want, and it gives us a path out of just the controversy, the debate we seem to be stuck in at the moment. Now, the book you've authored, The Five Masculine Instincts, and you put the word that masculine word right in there, walk us through those five instincts 
and uh, just unpack them a little bit for us. Yeah, well, I'd love to do that. Um, and as I mentioned uh, in this sort of moment before is I really was trying to find a way to have that conversation about character, not just sins. And so it is important to point out these are not the five masculine sins, uh, but the way I describe them in the book are these are instincts. These are the sort of ways of thinking or acting that can can become just sort of common sense or accepted by us. C.S. Lewis uses the phrase behavior as if from knowledge, that these instincts are just assumptions we make as if we've thought them through and rationalized them when often we haven't. Um, the instincts actually come from one of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, the, mm. the opening line of one of the monologues will be familiar. All the world's a stage and each of us mere players have our entrance and exits and a man uh, in his time plays many parts. And then Shakespeare goes on to describe seven stages of a man. The first and last of those are birth and death. And then it's these middle five that really describe mm -hmm. these stages a man experiences throughout life. And so if you read those, uh, you get these pretty clear images that emerge of each of those stages. When I came across them, I recognized immediately those stages in myself and particularly in the men I was leading. Um, to think about the challenges men are facing, men are not monolithic across age and situations and uh, life experiences. Those instincts can be very different, but in what Shakespeare was describing, Shakespeare, of course, being one of the great psychological writers, really understanding human nature, uh, he was describing many of the things I was seeing in the men I was pastoring. Mm. And then the more attention I gave to them, the more I started recognizing some of those same instincts at work in the men of the Bible. And so what I set out to do was describe those five instincts and then pair them with a, an example from Scripture, a man in Scripture. And so those five instincts, uh, the labels I gave them were sarcasm, which I used the story of Cain to unpack. Uh, the second is adventure. I used the story of Samson. The third is ambition, which I use Moses's story for. Then reputation, which I use David, and the final one, apathy, uh, which I turn to the story of Abraham. So those five instincts, uh, sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. So let, give us just some definition, sarcasm, what, sure. Cain, what, what, is that, how, what does that mean? Yeah, so what I'm looking for in these biblical stories are, is there a kind of instinct, an impulse, uh, a, a behavior as if from knowledge, do you see C.S. Lewis's phrase, that's driving this character in the story? And I think a good one to start with is Cain's. Uh, Cain, the big question in Cain's story, as you'll know well, is why does God accept Abel's sacrifice and reject Cain's? And there's all sorts of ideas. Um, we've got plenty of speculation about it, but the, the reality is the Bible is not clear on that. And what struck me in the story is, after God rejects Cain's sacrifice, God actually comes down and initiates a conversation with Cain and says to him, why are you, why are you frustrated and your face downcast? Don't you know that sin is crouching at your door? It's the first time sin is mentioned in the biblical account. Sin is, is ready to, to jump in and pounce on you, and you must rule it before it rules you. Now, the logical thing you would expect is for Cain to say, I don't understand. Why? That's the big question, right? Every preacher or commentator is asked, why did you reject my sacrifice and not Abel's? But Cain finds himself reluctant to listen or take the lesson that God is giving him. Shakespeare described this first stage of man as the reluctant schoolboy dragging himself to school. Mm. And you see in Cain, not just his rejection, but actually a divine opportunity for him to have a personal conversation with God about the kind of worship that God requires. 
But Kane, in his immaturity, can't bring himself to even entertain that conversation. And then, of course, what does he do? He reacts, murders his brother. God comes to him again. And then, of course, the sarcastic line, am I my brother's keeper? And uh, Cain must imagine himself sort of clever with that, right? Adam and Eve hid in a bush when they sinned. He sins and now uses this sort of sarcastic quip to cover it up. When in reality, we see pretty plainly, it's not clever, it's immature, it's a veneer to cover his contempt for God, and it's an unwillingness to mature into things God is trying to teach him. So I use that instinct to say to men, um, if you have a hard time taking things seriously in life, if you're constantly turning everything into a joke, if you can't be challenged, if you find yourself impulsive and reactive whenever you feel wronged, then perhaps what you imagine is cleverness or your sarcasm might actually be a kind of contempt that's holding you back from mm. the things God is trying to do in your life and teach you and grow you to become as a man. Number two, adventure, Samson. Yeah, I'll keep them a little quicker too, because yeah. I think you catch the, the point. But uh, I recognized in a lot of men restlessness when it comes to, there's a cultural narrative that says that to uh, to know who you are, to find your identity, you have to leave home and all of the uh, responsibilities of tradition and family and place, and you need an adventure to go and discover who you are and find yourself. It's basically every Disney movie that's being made. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a famous uh, monomyth narrative by Joseph Campbell called The Adventure's Journey that this is based on. And I saw in a lot of men, like myself at the time, my mid-30s, a mortgage, a car payment, two kids to feed, a job that perhaps you don't love, you know, where's the adventure? Where's this life that I thought I was going to live? And the way it starts to weaken commitment. And of course, that's so much Samson's story. Um, born into this Nazarite vow, this sort of backwards Israelite culture in the hills above the great cities of Philistia beneath him. And over and over, Samson finds himself going down to Philistia, these adventures, yeah. and imagining he can rescue himself. And in the end, it's that restless impulse to leave and walk away that ends up over and over betraying him. And I think warns us about, um, about an unchecked desire for adventure. Number three, ambition, Moses. Yeah, uh, ambitious is is uh, ambition is one of the more interesting ones for me because ambition can be this experience both of I can achieve anything, I'm capable of conquering the world and fixing problems, and then so often when ambition fails, when we fail, we find ourselves disillusioned and discouraged, but yet still sort of defining ourselves and everything else by that ambition that we we measure success constantly against. Uh, it's really clear in Moses's story. Moses at times has this great ambition. Acts tells us that he strikes down the Egyptian, imagining that the, the Hebrew people will rally behind him. They don't. He spends the next 40 years sort of just doing a, a hidden work in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then all of a sudden is so reluctant when God calls him back to that work that he imagined he was kicking off this real tension of, of our own success or failure with ambition. And then as he leads the people through the wilderness, over and over, he finds uh, them not living up to his expectations, the frustration of trying to lead those people. And then that great scene where uh, God tells him to go and provide water from the rock by speaking to it. And not only does he disobey by striking it, but he says, uh, the Bible says, he says to the people, you rebels, must we provide water from this rock for you? And you see the ways that his ambition causes him to lose perspective on who he is, who the people are, who God is. He starts mistaking himself for God. There's nothing wrong with ambition. It's not a sin, just like adventure. Um, we're certainly not trying to say we need to raise up a generation of ambitionless men, but we should be we should be aware of the way that ambition can blind us to what God is doing. It can replace our own vision, our own judgments with God's, and it can really uh, unleash destruction around us if we don't have a practice of checking it. Right. 
Number four, reputation, David. David's story is set in the context of Saul's story. Those two are so tightly connected in the story. And uh, there's this interesting theme I came across reading through the books of First and Second Samuel, how important the image of clothing is. So often clothing becomes symbolic, whether it's Jonathan offering his robe to David as a sign that he's the heir, or it's Saul trying to place his armor on David when he goes out to fight. Uh, there's some really pivotal moments where clothing is symbolic. And the big question between these two men that often comes up through that image is, who will they be? Will they try to live into the public image? Will they try to protect that public reputation? Or can they be who they are, honest before God? And at times, David gets this right in spectacular ways. I mean, when he takes off Saul's armor and says, no, I'll fight Goliath as I am, a shepherd with a sling, there's this real sense of he knows who he is before God, and he's humble enough to embrace that and live that out. But yet David has other moments where, you know, lounged on the roof when other kings went out to war, he falls into sin with Bathsheba, and then to make it worse, to protect his reputation, mm -hmm. uh, conspires to murder uh, Bathsheba's wife, Uriah, and cover it up, and imagines he gets away with it. And uh, so really, David's story in so many ways is a question of integrity. Can he do what God has asked him to do, this big public role as king, but can he do it as he actually is, a, a mere man, humble before God, God's God's servant as well, and the tension of reputation and public image. And for so many men that wrestle with, look, we're well known as men for being compartmentalizers. If I could succeed in one part of life, business or hobby or a personality type or some sort of success, then it's enough to sort of cover up all the things that I don't get right in life. And so uh, I think we have to look long and hard at what is this reputation to try to protect our image? And what does it mean to actually embrace a lifestyle of integrity uh, as a way of checking it? And the first four were really easy, almost intuitive to, to see. But then you go to number five, apathy and Abraham. Yeah, well, it's a little bit uh, maybe unexpected because Abraham, of course, is the character of faith. If there's anybody who seems like he's not apathetic, I mean, yeah. Abraham leaves home and travels across horizons and follows God, not yeah. even knowing where he's going. But if you look at all of the moments where Abraham tends, tends to struggle it is mm -hmm. his inabilities to sustain that faith into action. So whether it's when he faced risks with kings like the Egyptian Pharaoh and he ends up passing his wife off as his sister and yeah. he's just unable to sort of bear the risk of that moment. Or, of course, you know, the great one when when um, his wife Sarah comes and lays out a plan to, to have a son with their, their servant Hagar. Abraham seems sort of passive to the whole thing. And even when it starts turning into conflict within his home, he says to Sarah, you deal with it. And, of course, mm -hmm. it just just fractures his home into more and more conflict. But really, I see this apathy. There's a kind of false ending that takes place in Abraham's story. You get to the end of Genesis chapter 21, and he plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba with this well. And just before it, we read that he signs all these peace treaties with the people around him. He's probably at some of his highest wealth. He, he also welcomes finally Isaac, that long-awaited promise. And so you get the end of chapter 21, where Abraham, old in age, finally has everything he's been waiting for. He sits down in Beersheba, this land he's been traveling to, and you expect to turn to the page and it be Isaac's story. But instead you turn the page and you read the opening lines of chapter 22, Genesis 22, but God tested Abraham. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's where Abraham receives that test to sacrifice Isaac. And I think really one of the great temptations of Abraham's life was in this moment where he had everything. And for so many men who managed to reach that moment of retirement or that moment of financial independence or 
um, well, I may still believe in God. I may still have faith in God, but what do I really need faith for? What do I really need God for? And the way this test forces, really thrusts Abraham back into this world of faith and his dependence on what God might be doing in this moment, to me is a wake-up call for many of us as men that we can't, we can't craft for ourselves a little safe world of control and allow our faith to, to just sort of wither in the midst of it. That's awesome, great material. One of the questions that came to me is, why five Hebrew from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament? Why five from the Old Testament? Yeah, a couple of things. So I, um, number one, I think these instincts are all over the place in yeah. Scripture and in the men there. And certainly some of them are even overlapping in the men I've described. I think you see moments of apathy in David's story that lead yeah. to some of the protections of reputation. Um, I've always been a student and loved the Old Testament stories. Okay. And the Old Testament stories are so incredibly well-written, and I think mm -hmm. so many of them are trying to speak to, particularly these Genesis stories, the David stories, they really are, they're trying to wrestle with what is in the human heart. Uh, Genesis, of course, is in so many ways a question of the way in which sin works itself in. I mean, that's why it starts in this Cain story. Sin really is crouching at your door and looking for these opportunities to take advantage of you. And so in so many ways, these ancient Hebrew stories are really uh, um, both true, but truer than true. They're, they're, they're sort of like true of humanity, true of human experience, true of these, these deeper things at work in all of the human heart. And so they found like a really sort of foundational way of having the conversation about some of these things that not only are at work in their lives, but you can also start to see it work in our own lives as well. And the five instincts you warned is some of the, the downside of them. Do they, do they have an upside? Yeah, I, so I think, as I said before, these are not the five sins of man. Right. It's not as if you are somehow wrong to ever have an adventure, nor would I say, you know, if you retire and your schedule lightens somehow, oh, watch out, it's apathy, you know, you've now stumbled into sin. Uh, what I'm trying to say is there are certain sins that come up in a man's life because he is blind to the impulses and instincts and desires at work within him. And that is particularly true in these five stories that oftentimes mm -hmm. David doesn't see it coming. He's protecting his public reputation and doesn't recognize the way that sin is going to lead to collapse and even greater sins. And so a man who is trying to grow in character at some point has to be able to recognize what is actually going on within my life as far as instincts, impulses, if I want to be able to grow beyond those things. So certainly nothing wrong, like I said, with ambition. You should have ambition. The New Testament recommends we care about our reputation. But if those things become a kind of instinctive indulgence, if we're not able to have perspective on them, then they can drive us and move us into places and sins that we might not have been, we might not even been aware we were capable of or recognized as risks. So current men sitting under your teaching or guys that are listening to this podcast or their, their beloved loved ones, wives, how can we encourage men to use their masculinity for maximum impact in the culture that we live in? I think we have to carve out a way for men to be engaged and to be growing in faith. And we have created a culture where we've accepted man, men checking out. We've set the bar so low that if a man shows up to church on Sunday morning, we sort of imagine that that's an achievement, that he's somehow engaging along with his family and faith. And I think we need to say that the kind of disengagement that is plaguing men right now 
is both destructive to them, but it's also destructive to the people you care about. It's destructive to the church. We need men and women engaged with everything they have in faith, participating and serving in the church. And so it's it's not acceptable for us as men to say, well, culture's, culture's got this thing against me right now and everything's complicated. And to say the word masculinity is complicated. So you know what? I'm just going to set this one out. I'm just going to... Ah, even when it's difficult, even when we come up against opposition, we have to make sure that our faith is engaged and alive and that we're pursuing everything that Christ has for us. And we're actively involving ourselves in this pursuit of Christ-like character. Um, you know, this is Abraham in so many ways. It may be more comfortable to just avoid the whole complexity, but it's dangerous. And our call is to keep growing. I love Peter's words where he says, um, and supplement your faith with virtue, with character, right? With godliness, with brotherly love, persevere, press on, keep keep adding to it. Um, men, as men today, we have to pick up that responsibility and do it. Yeah. Friends, the name of the book is The Five Masculine Instincts. Chase, how can people find it? How can they get it? How can they connect with you, follow your ministry, find your church? How can we do those things? Yeah, well, the book is available anywhere you buy books. So, um, of course, uh, Amazon has it, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, as well as Christian Books, if you buy there, Lifeway. Um, If you're interested in learning about the book, the5masculineinstincts.com, that's with the number five. And I actually have an assessment on there. It's a free little 25-question quiz, nothing scientific, but it'll ask you questions across these five instincts, and it'll uh, let you know kind of which of the instincts you're scoring highest in. I think it's a helpful way just to get you thinking about what instincts might be work within your own life. And there's uh, there's articles on there to break down where the instincts come from, much as we've described some video content on there to get an explanation for it and all the information you would need about the book. So the5masculineinstincts.com is the best place. The5masculineinstincts.com, the name of the book, The Five Masculine Instincts. I loved when you said that we need to challenge men to engage and grow in their faith. And guys, if you're listening, you want to be an influencer, you want to influence the world you live in, you can't sit on the sideline. You can't watch from the stands. We need to get you onto the field. We need to get you suited up. And there's a place for you. And uh, as men that want to see you engage, Chase, myself, our family here at the Influencers Podcast, get into the game, engage, and there'll be a rich reward for you and for those around you. Pastor, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We uh, look forward to just getting to know you more in the days to come. Thanks so much. Yeah, well, thanks. The honor is all mine, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity. And uh, my heart is that, uh, as you described it so well, that we would raise up a generation of men that are passionate about becoming like Christ and engaging all the responsibilities of the world. And if I can be a small part of that, I'm grateful for the opportunity. And if you're in the Springfield, Missouri area, Bent Oak Church, check it out. You're welcome anytime. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Influencers Podcast on the Charisma Podcast Network. If you enjoy our content, we would love for you to subscribe and have the opportunity to tune in to future podcasts. You can follow us on all social media platforms at the Influencers Podcast Official. You can stay up to date, hear more inspiring content, and unlock your full potential as an influencer. Remember to use your influence to create lasting change that draws the world closer to Jesus.